Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing the third episode of the second season of His Dark Materials, Theft. This episode was written by Sarah Quintrell. She is a TV actress who has expanded into TV writing the last few years. And this episode was directed by Leanne Wellam. Uh, Most of her past projects have been short films, which she has written, directed, and edited. So she has a deep knowledge of the whole process. And I think it's kind of interesting to have two women on the project who are like really multifaceted in uh, TV storytelling. It's kind of cool. Yeah, that is really cool. I like that about um, Bad Wolf shows. A lot of them that I've seen have a really strong female presence behind the camera. I think it's a lot of it might be due to Jane Trantor. Trantor. Trant. I forgot her name. Shoot. But she's like the executive producer at at Bad Wolf. Does she listen as well? God, I hope not. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) If you're listening, we love you. Um, and I, I think that I like that they're this kind of small studio that uses a lot of their own employees in different ways. Like I think the, um, the lady who plays Esther is also a writer. Mm. Oh, and so I, I like that they give them these opportunities to try out different things, like how they're kind of like a small boutique studio, but also they have HBO money. Yeah. Right. You know, so I, I like that about them. And BBC money. Like, let's yes. not forget, they're very linked mm-hmm. with BBC, which big thunder. Yeah. Yeah, but I like that they're, they have this, the money so they can do cool shows, but they have some freedom from these big name corporations so they can try out different things. And they're not yeah. giving opportunities to like a bunch of stodgy old white guys who have been in the business for a long time. This is like, you know. I mean, this is a Jack cool Thornton thing for wrote them to... this whole fucking show. So yes, they are oh, also yeah. doing that. It's <laughs> not. But it's cool that these, you know, that these women can put this stuff on their resume. You know, like I was on this major show and I wrote this episode yeah. or I directed, and you know that helps you get and more stuff. Smashed it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this week, Lyra returns to Will's Oxford to talk to Mary Malone again and has to run away from the police who are looking for Will. Incognito, Lord Boreal helps her escape, but steals the alethiometer in the process. Lyra and Will confront Lord Boreal at his fancy townhouse, and he tells them he'll give the alethiometer back if they bring him a knife from the Tower of Angels in Chitagatsi. 
Meanwhile, Lee Scoresby is searching for Grumman, getting arrested by the Magisterium, and then interrogated and released by Mrs. Coulter. So what were our general thoughts on this episode? How are we feeling about it? I thought it was another really solid, fun episode um, with some really good adaptive choices from the book. I feel the same. I just felt like it was a good, yeah, solid episode. Um, nothing particularly stand outy, but not in a bad way. If that makes any sense. It was just, we're just trucking along, but it was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt like the the storytelling is really good in this episode, but it doesn't feel like an episode of television necessarily in that it's like more of a bridge to like it's building things up. Uh, and it feels more like the kind of episode that you would get for a streaming show than instead of like, you know, traditional episodic television um, the, where that has like a primary conflict within the episode. So not that that's a bad thing. I think it's like aiming towards its legacy as like how people are going to be viewing it for the for years to come. Um, but it's like, you know, since we're talking about just this episode, it's that's definitely something I noticed about it. I mean, I think you're right that that works more for binging, but I think it also just kind of works from the source material that it's coming from, right? It's coming from a book. No one really mm. complains that like chapter six doesn't tell a complete story, right? It's, I think the fact now that I it's, it that. wasn't developed first as a TV show, it's being adapted from other material um, has an influence on the way the story is told. That's a really good point. In that the story is told better rather than week by week where it's kind of very hard to follow. (laughs) Well, I just mean that like, she's right that, you know, this is adapting a whole story, which is much, much bigger and breaking into small parts, which have their own internal arc is like a whole different, you know, level of like having to do that is a big ask it's interesting that we bring this up just because i wonder if people younger than us would even notice Mm. Mm -hmm. you know because we grew up when tv was just sort of starting to change into something that they felt okay doing things like this Mm -hmm. and so people who grew up with game of thrones or you know that type of thing mm, it might not even, it might not even blip, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, TV is definitely more serialized now than ever. What, No matter where its source material is coming from, like just regular TV shows will be very serialized yeah. now. Yeah, a lot of, I mean, a lot of prestige TV shows will pick one or maybe two episodes in a season that have a really cohesive arc in the story or like a very different feel. Um, but for the most part, things are pretty serialized. It must be weird for for shows that like existed before and still exist now. Well, not as of a couple of days ago, the one I'm thinking of, I guess. You mean The Simpsons? No, I mean Supernatural. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> which like started not only was it very Monster of the Week, but started at a time when like pre Game of Thrones, it started, you know, pre everybody being on board with very, very popular, very serialized television. And it now and it exists, you know, it, it went through that. 
Mm-hmm. That's just I stopped watching after season three, so I have no idea if it changed anything. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder. It was Supernatural ever syndicated and airing as reruns? Because, that I mean, that's, like, the whole point of having episodic TV, right? Is that TV developed through the system of syndication where, like, you need to be able to watch episodes out of order or without yeah. seeing what came before or what came after and have it be a satisfying story. And that's just not how people watch TV anymore. No one just kind of, like, sits down and turns the TV on and starts flipping through channels and, you know, happens upon things that way. Mm. I know some people who like to do that, but they're all generations above us who, you know, grew up doing that. Yeah. Okay, well, this ends our History of Television segment. Um, And now we'll... (laughs) Oh, no, Francis hasn't gone yet. (laughs) Or did Um. you... Uh, no, I haven't gone my general feelings, um, but my general feelings were the same as yours, which were just, it was great, but also like the, um, you know, there were slight differences from the books and I didn't necessarily agree with all of them. We'll come to that later, but for the most part, it was good as I was kind of come to expect from this show, which is good. <laughs> it's a good show. <laughs> All right, and what was everybody's favorite part? Okay, well, surprising nobody, I have a whole list again. I really liked the demon work, uh, especially with Lyra and Pan at the beginning. I thought her flicking him with water was super cute, and shutting him in the backpack in the middle of a sentence um, was hilarious. It all just felt very interactive, and like he was a real character. We're not really doing this, are we? Promise Mary I would. And I think that machine has more to tell us. But the alethiometer was clear. We need to help Will find his father. But first, we need to find out more about dust. Or Roger. If it's such a good idea, then why are we creeping? We need to stay with Will. It's too dangerous for Will and Oxford. The police are looking for him. But the alethiometer said that we should... Lyra, are we sure about this? It's fine. There's no one around. I also loved Daphne Keene's delivery of what a wonderful mustache. I was like cackling uh, in response to that. I think that was probably like my favorite single moment. You have to go. Why are we whispering? There's a policeman in my office asking questions about you. He knows you came to see me yesterday. How does he know? I have no idea. Lyra, are you in trouble? Do you need help? Sorry to keep you waiting. I was just... Can you both step into the office, please? a wonderful moustache but I also really liked when Mary is helping Lyra escape from the police I was a little worried that that scene was gonna feel like unrealistic or cheesy um or it just like wouldn't work very well 
but I think they managed to to choreograph it so that it felt very real. It felt very scary um, and like realistic that that they could, um, you know, stop the the police guy from from catching her. Um, and just, yeah, like Mary's character was great. I think she, uh, she comes across as like really clever, being able to think on her feet um, and very capable. Yeah, I loved all the demon stuff in this episode. It was so good. And I really, really do love how we're getting so much Pan and Lyra and their relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've actually done the demons this time, which they kind of skimmed out on a bit last time. It felt mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. You mean last season, not last yes. episode? But yeah, but like all of it was so good. Like Pan and Lyra was good. Even just the... um. Like, sometimes we got, like, wide shots over that random town that Lee ended up in. And, like, not... You couldn't see every person's demon, but you could see enough that you... That, like, they just made good choices there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, when yeah. they did, like, a pan shot through through the bar or the inn, whatever, and there were a couple birds flying around and something over there, like an animal over there, I forget what it was. But, again, not not one with every person, but enough that you understood that everybody had one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it actually felt like there were demons everywhere, which was our biggest one yeah. of our big complaints of the first season. Right. I have heard. I honestly don't remember if this is something we were discussing, like off recording, or something I read somewhere. But I've had I have heard they the their demon money is better this season because they don't have a fucking bear fight. <laughs> I think I mentioned that maybe in the last episode that we were filming or I got, but um, it came from the videos that we were watching from the website because they, they mentioned that it took them six months to choreograph the bear fight and that that was like where a lot of their CGI budget and effort went. And so it's completely conjecture on my part, but I think that perhaps the fact that they didn't have to do a giant bear fight climax this season um, means mm-hmm. that they could redirect that effort um, or reallocate it more evenly throughout all the episodes. Although actually, maybe I didn't see that in the episode. Maybe I was just saying that in our chat. Yeah, I genuinely don't remember. But <laughs> I must I, say but also- that I think, this is, I think this is the much better use of that same money like this uh, uh makes the whole world feel so much more alive and a bit different mm-hmm. whilst the bear fight was great liked it probably weren't wasn't worth cutting most of the demons for yeah and i think it's also i think i said this in the chat too that the special effects studio that they're using is also getting more experience with doing this and so that helps too you know like being in the second season, taking in some of the criticism that happened and like thinking about how do we want to deploy the resources we have is like, you know, it's the little things. It's like when Will confronts Lyra while she's on the bench and she feels so ashamed of herself and Pan like looks at the ground with shame when Lyra has shame in her voice. You know, it's those tiny touches like that that really sell the demons, I think. Uh, so my favorite scene, well, I have two. Um, I really loved the scene in the movie theater. Uh, Paddington, always a great choice. Good movie. He was an explorer. And if we can find him, I know he'll give me a home. A proper home. 
What is this? It's popcorn. It's disgusting. It tastes like wood shaving. You can stop eating it. I can't. You take anything seriously. Is that why you came looking for me? You thought I was messing around? Just because I'm not sat in a corner crying doesn't mean I don't take things seriously. I lost my best friend. He was killed by my father. And I think about him every single day. And I miss him. I want to talk to him. I want to tell him I'm sorry because it's my fault he died. And I loved the discussion that Will and Lyra had about, uh, well, I just, I loved the discussion they had. I'm gonna talk about it in our spoilers section, so. Yeah, Anyways. I think, I've never seen Paddington, um, so I have no context for this, but I did think it was really cool, obviously, that they have a scene in a movie where someone is going through a portal of some kind. Um, mm. That was, like, kind of clever. I genuinely have no memory of that scene. I think he's just remembering when he was back in the jungle or wherever it is that Paddington um, it looks like a portal to me. Maybe I was projecting, but... Um. No, no, no. I'm sure they chose that scene on purpose because it does yeah. resemble the windows. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I just thought that was a really great scene. And then, uh, even though Will uses his cell phone in a movie theater, which he should be shot. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That is a particular pet peeve of mine. Um, but uh, also, I really did love... Um, the juxtaposition of after the torture scene when Hester comforts Lee and she rubs his head against his and you can really see their close relationship. And then you cut right to Mrs. Coulter and the golden monkey who reaches out very, very tentatively and just sort of touches his, her fingers. Mm -hmm. And you can really, really see the different relationships with their demons and therefore what they think and feel about themselves. Right. I love that. That's really well observed. Um, Cause I have so much to say about the comparison between Lee and Mrs. Coulter in this episode. And yeah, like I had not noticed the way that you're being invited to compare and contrast that. That's great. I guess I could just talk about torture now. Um, are we just going to, since you gave me that, <laughs> really I was good. Say, are we going to do favorite parts and least these favorite parts, and then go into torture? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always there's always a good time for Ruth Wilson hurting people, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this whole this whole podcast could be that. Uh, well, she's she's taking it as much as she's dishing it out this time, on an emotional level, right? <laughs> That's why it's my favorite scene in this one. Is like. There's all this vulnerability that's happening, and uh, it's also kind of an inversion of the torture scene that we already got with her and the witch, which I feel like ultimately Mrs. Coulter won, but had robbed from her. You know, she was definitely going to get the information she wanted, but uh, Ruta snatched that away from her at the last second. And in this, I feel like Mrs. Coulter loses and um, she doesn't get what she wants and Lee wins the encounter because it's all internal and he's just stronger than her internally. You know, because you had parents just like mine. Of course you did. Of course. 
course you did. <laughs> you know nothing about me. And I believed it. I believed him. I believed I was nothing. Believed I deserved it. I was almost grateful for it when it came. You ever feel that? Grateful? You did, didn't you? I know what it's like to feel hurt like yours. But right now, I feel more alive than I have in years because of her. She's given me hope. I will rip out every nail. And I will break every bone. And it won't break me. And you know it won't. Because it wouldn't break you either. You can threaten me. Torture me. But I will never tell you where Lyra is. Because my life is worth one-tenth of hers. And, like, his strength lies in his ability to be comfortable being vulnerable, and her inability to be vulnerable, like, I think says something about what heroism and villainy is in this story. And uh, yeah. like in his dark materials overall. So I just, I love the scene. Yeah, I thought it was really good. And I have some other thoughts about it, but I think we should maybe save that for later um, once we get through our, our intro sections. My favorite part was, as is usual with me, the science. And more specifically, the coding. Because... The, in this particular one, um, they actually did a pretty good job with the code that Mary had on the screen when she was working on the cave. So usually places kind of just screw it up a bit and they just, I don't know, they'll have some random junk, they'll have some HTML, stuff like that. It's really common. <laughs> There's a whole subreddit about it. Um, and then in this one, they actually had real life Python, written in a by someone who obviously knows how to write some Python, probably looks like quite a bit. And the thing I really liked is that they even used something called SciPy, which is a Python package for doing scientific programming. And they even even imported it in the same way that you like you would if you were doing scientific programming so you'd write from import scipy as sc and they do that and that just made me just feel warm inside they actually <laughs> got someone to do it properly it's like in a, in a film if you see someone i don't know working on a car and they obviously don't know what they're doing if you know anything about looking you know working on a car you go what the hell are you doing and then you see something where someone actually does something sensible and they say jargon and the jargon makes sense and you go thank fuck for that <laughs> rather than hacker man i'm in but yeah loved it um okay so speaking of science I did want to ask, did you also pause on the um, bartender lady's spider demon? And if so, was it a real spider? I'm afraid oh. I did not. Um, <gasps> what I will do is I will go back over it when we're done. I will check it and we can put it in next time. Okay. <laughs> Though just a very quick point. I really didn't like that bartender as a plot point at all. 
I found it oh, really yeah? lazy to have the uh, the like overly talkative bartender revealing inf- crucially important plot information where the plot couldn't work if random bartender didn't run their mouth. It's like, come on. Mm. It just feels like it. It's like halfway between Deus Ex Machina and just straight out bad writing. But I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that's something from the books or not. It just no, it, she, she's like not it. in the books. So yeah, it's literally just here. Have a plot point. We had a man in here last week. Said Grumman survived that trap. That's great news. You tell you anything else? He worked at the observatory for a while. Up the mountain. Not far from here. Maybe try up there. Thank you. Room 17, left at the top of the stairs. Second outsider we've had in today. Really? We had an aeronaut in earlier. And I've just heard he's been arrested. It didn't bother me. Because it, like, it did what it had to do. It, like, got us from point A to point B without too much trouble. And, like, point point. B B was worth it. But, like, do you have a better suggestion? I don't know. I mean, this actually comes down to the fact that I disagree with that fundamental adaptation of Lee getting caught. Oh. Which we'll come to in a bit. Okay, Mm. okay. I'm excited to fight with you about that. Um, I want, oh, the actress who plays the bartender, she seemed familiar to me. Does anybody have any idea who she is? Okay, I, couldn't, uh, I meant I couldn't to look find this her up. Name. Okay, because, she, like, she looks like Twyla from Schitt's Creek, but I don't think she is. She looked to me like an actress who is, like, the main bad guy from Timeless. And I was like, is that her? And I didn't look it up, and I meant to. Yeah. Red-headed are we, are we going to all look the same. Well, I went through the list of his Dark Materials actors, and I I didn't even see her there. I thought she did a good job, but I agree with Francis that it is clunky. Yeah, well, her acting was fine. I just I just felt the part was bad. I would never say bad, but it's you could do something else for sure. Okay, yeah. Um, (laughs) Again, we'll we'll come to precisely my thoughts on this in a minute speaking of least favorite parts <laughs> segway um i guess i was kind of reaching in this episode but my least favorite part was uh the the interaction between liana mormont and will Wait. it wasn't bad but it, it was like the least good <laughs> okay full-on canonical just- crossover yeah, just to be clear, it's not Liana Mormont, but I know what you mean. Well, it is. I know, I get it. It's Her name is uh, Ramsey, Bella Ramsey, I think. Yeah. It's very hard for actors, especially actresses, to get opportunities when you pigeonhole them by their most famous role. Let's not do that to this young woman. Okay, what, what is to her... To be fair, like, what she is... smashed that role. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she's great. Who's that in the tower? No one. There's definitely someone up there. It'll be a ghost or something. I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if it's haunted. It's a person. It can't be. There's no way in and no way out. What's it for, then? 
Vittorio Deli Angeli belongs to the Guild. The Guild? No one knows much about them, really, but my brother says they're this group of men who know important stuff like philosophy, alchemy. Cowards, mind you. They ran away when the Spectres came, so I called the other grown-ups. And now only the children are left here. They get your parents. Spectres. No. You're lucky. Got mine right in front of me. Ate the life out of them. I'm sorry. Makes you nervous, being on your own. It does. I best be off. Need a plan? You're almost a grown-up and you know what that means. Won't be long before the spectres are after you. I'm not scared. That's because you've never seen them at work. It's not that I thought that she did a bad job. It's just that it was the least interesting scene that I was the least invested in. It, it was basically like... it was basically just uh, an exposition dump so that Will would know things about the tower and that we would know that there was a person in there. Yeah. It like it wasn't character driven at all, and so that's why I didn't like it. Oh, uh, that's funny because the maybe it was the way that she played it. I read it as like her looking for like security within the city, you know, because there's no adults and seeing Will as like a possible source of like protection and or like be on my side, but also like you're very cute. And really? oh, yeah, like I was shipping it a little bit. I was like, is this are they introducing a somewhat romantic subplot and make which would be problematic because it would be like make her and Lyra rivals on some level. I was like, what is what is the point of what's going on here? Oh, I did not get that at all. I didn't for, get that at all. Either. No, what I I read it as just like Will was looking for Lyra. He thought that that might be Lyra. And then when he tracked her down, she was like standoffishly and reluctantly giving information. Yeah, I mean, you're 100 percent right. Mechanically, in terms of the plot, that is what that scene is doing. Totally. I was just trying to like, what are you doing, writers? Is this telegraphing something else? But it's it probably not. It's probably just what you're saying. So my least favorite part was not that Lee got caught, but just the way that they had him asking questions. Like in the book, when he's asking questions about Grumman, he just adds in a, a you know, somebody says, why are you looking? And he just says, because he owes me money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and everybody's like, right, good. And I feel like there was a good opportunity for that line there for him to just say, like when somebody says he's dead and he goes, he's dead. Like he could have just said, ah, oh, son of a bitch, man owes me money. Mm-hmm. And I like just the way that they did it made Lee seem very unaware of the world he lives in. Like he was just mm, asking yeah. questions willy nilly, didn't care who was listening He's meant to be fairly worldly, and he comes across yeah. as a touch naive. Yeah, exactly. That's true. And even later on, when he's upset and he he yells something like, "Isn't there anywhere in the world that the magisterium isn't, or or whatever?" It's like, obviously, no. That's the whole fucking point in this book. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was one area. It was the witches up north, and they just bombed the shit out of it. So, mm-hmm. godly, read the book. 
Yeah, Jesus. Fuck's sake. <laughs> I did really like Lin-Manuel Miranda's delivery of the line, Amen, though. I feel like that was... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was when, some good yeah, dialogue. Good. It was very good. And once he knew what was happening there, yes, he adapted that. But still, I just feel like Lee would know what was going on. Mm-hmm. You work here alone? Yes. The others... just me. Dr. Haley, could I ask you about a Dr. Stanislaus Grumman? An Englishman, despite the name. I understand he worked here some years ago. What do you want with Dr. Grumman? Uh, you wouldn't happen to know where he is now, do you? Somewhere up the NSA River. Why do you want to know? So he is alive. Dr. Stanislaus Grumman is a heretic. I didn't know that. Well, you've been most helpful. We better get going, weather being what it is. By their fruits, shall ye know them. By their questions, shall ye see the serpent gnawing at their heart. Amen. You have a good day. Well, that was weird. Um, actually, go, I'm going to springboard off that because my biggest problem in this is I don't like the observatory scene. I like it worked, but it just felt a bit jarring to me. And the changes that they made leave some things that they can't do anymore, which I also don't like. Um, I'm not sure we can come to that right now, unless you've listened to the book podcast, in which case you know what actually happened. But just... So, okay, let's break it down. Firstly, how he gets there, we already discussed. It was a little bit, like, clunky. Then he goes up to the observatory, and I like the observatory itself. I think it's cool. I like it. It's a little bit closer to the town than I'd imagined. I imagined it to be like, you know, at least a few hours walk. But also, there's only one person there mm-hmm. in this observatory. And that already brings up, if you know the books, a big question, which is, well, that one person at the observatory... Are they also the Magisterium plant? Are they the Magisterium loyalist? And turns out, yes, yes, in fact, they are. But that gives a completely different feeling to what's going on. Instead of the scientists who are working under this watchful, ever-seeing eye of the Magisterium, instead you've got loyalist scientists, specifically one loyalist scientist, working at the observatory. And then you kind of get a different feeling for everything from there. Like, Lee getting captured then is, like, that's not meant to happen. And it doesn't, like, I see where they're taking it. I see that they're trying to kind of speed the story along a bit. But to me, it just kind of fell off the whole time. Also, a few other things that 
just kind of got me about the observatory thing. When this is a really minor detail, but when Lee is shot at by the academic and then falls back, he does something called fanning the hammer, which is where you hold down essentially the trigger of a revolver and um, spam the hammer with your other hand. It's very inaccurate. It's it, He's meant to be a sharpshooter for the most part. And then he's just spraying all of his ammunition all over the place. And you're looking at it going, that's not how Lee would do this. Lee would... Lee gets shot at, he takes cover. He approaches the situation in the methodical way that we see from Lee all the rest of the time. It just, it doesn't feel right. And also, final thing, and I did actually mention this in the last thing. Sorry, you just sounded like you, like, stamped your foot there. We're like, it doesn't feel right. Get it's not it right, okay, man. people. <laughs> God. And the final thing, but this is something I actually mentioned um, in the last episode, but... And it's something I quite like, but it's just a little bit extra, is they give all the Magisterium soldiers MP40s. Now, the MP40 was like the workhorse of the Nazi army. Like, it was a submachine gun specifically made during World War II for the Nazi soldiers, and it was ubiquitous with them. So if you've got these Magisterium soldiers, which are already basically an analogy for the Nazis, and then you give them fucking MP40s, you might as well have given them red armbands with the Magisterium logo <laughs> on them. Like, dress them in fucking Hugo Boss. Like, seriously? <laughs> it's so obvious at this point. Well, for some viewers, it's so obvious. Yeah, I didn't know that. I had no idea. <laughs> but even if you didn't know it, it will still give you that feeling. Because it's mm-hmm. it is so common within the I can see that uh, the cultural zeitgeist, if you will. Like, yeah, that's how it's it's just a very lazy way to show that a bunch of soldiers are evil. <laughs> it's give them wow. Nazi machine guns. <laughs> yeah, it just gives them Nazi imagery. Mm. It's, as soon as you do, everyone's like, "Well, they're the Nazis," and so we know what Nazis do. And it's like, yes, Nazis do do that, but there are other bad people in the world, and the Magisteriums are like a little bit more nuanced in it's being a bad institution. I don't know. I kind of like it. I mean, I, I 100% understand what you're saying, but in a way I kind of like it from a modern perspective because modern Nazis 100% think that they are on the side of righteous religiousness, you know? So if you think of it from making a Nazi comparison in a modern sense, I kind of like the commentary there. But yeah, I I understand what you're saying. I was thinking the same thing that weirdly Nazis have come around the horn and are like topical again. Unfortunately. Jesus. (laughs) God. Sorry. I was just going to say what you're saying about Lee's. I, I get it because Lee in the book is so great, but I think something we should keep in mind is that Lee is just a different person in the show, like a very different person. Yeah, that's fair. And it, it is hard because we did just read the book and Lee in the books is fabulous, but they are, they do just write him completely differently in the show. He's not the same character and it's not necessarily bad. It's just different. Yeah, no, that's very fair. I, I agree with like what you're saying about fanning the hammer and stuff, but I have to say that every time he does that, it excites me like enormously. I love (laughs) to see that. 
they, they did it in stir. season one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it, when he was fighting the uh, the cliff ghasts, and I was like, yeah. oh my god, this like leather clad cowboy is fanning the hammer. Like that's amazing. I love it so much. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I love it so much, but it definitely is a thing for me. I guess. Is it secretly fan service? I guess. (laughs) I do think it's very much a way in in like action movies to denote the American. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Like, um, no, well, he's he's Texan. Texan. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) It's that same thing because um, it happens in the Mummy. Yes, you're right. Americans are just. You know, fan in the hammer. I've never heard or used that term before, so it felt strange coming out of my mouth. Butter- <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> but are doing the same thing. And I don't know, I just, I think it's a way to be like, oh, yes, that man is American. He likes guns. He has a lot of ammunition and he doesn't care where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Except he only has six shots. Uh oh. I I really like all that uh, cool gun knowledge that you're bringing in as the one person from a country with the most restrictive gun laws, um, <laughs> who has I'm, probably I'm not American. Hello, I'm from Canada. We have gun laws, but you have so much wilderness. You have like you have to kill polar bears. There's Canada yeah. has guns. Nobody kills Can polar bears. Pistols? They're endangered. <sighs> okay. My point was that I do want to respectfully disagree <laughs> with um, with uh, I actually liked the way that they kind of streamlined everything at the observatory. I thought it was a decent way to just like get things moving along. And I do like the scene between Lee and Mrs. Coulter. And so having him just get immediately captured um, and having I like what it does for her character that she releases him instead of him using the ring that he stole off the spy. Like it goes down in the book. Um, so that was one of the adaptive choices that I did like, um, but we can talk more about that later. I, I had not noticed all of these things you're pointing out, Francis. It's interesting to think about. Um, I, I am convinced by a lot of your points. I'm, I'm now wondering too, like why they lampshaded in the dialogue that he is there alone when it was like, yeah, it's weird that he's there alone. Right. Although I, I will say I was a little bit annoyed that the dude was awake because that was very unrealistic. Speaking of science, like if you work at an observatory, you sleep during the day. That's like, I've actually, I've like spent time at scientific observatories and you know, like all of the rooms have blackout curtains. You're it's like quiet hours. You're not allowed to even just like talk in a normal voice um, in a lot of areas during the day because you know, there's like, a huge portion of the staff is on night shift and daytime is uh, sleep time, which must be protected at all costs, unless it's cloudy. Um, if the weather sucks, then everyone is just drinking and doing fuck all all the time. That is something they also say in the episode. He's like, I oh. can't do anything. It's foggy. Oh, OK. Yeah, that's yeah. True, actually. Yeah. So I guess so that's why he's not asleep. <laughs> I, the one thing that I, I'm actually pretty happy with that scene, and I like that Lee gets captured, 
The one thing I think it loses, in the same way that I was talking about how they made Lee kind of dumb, it loses the subtlety of the world. Like, when Lee went to the observatory in the book, he's just having a conversation with the scientists, but all of them know who's listening, you know? Mm. And it gave this sort of silent but very present menacing to the whole world, you know? Because you knew that everywhere was like that. You can have whatever conversations you want, but you always know that somebody is listening. Mm-hmm. And I get specifically the t- magisterium. Well, yeah, yeah. And like mm-hmm. TV shows, a lot of the time don't have time for that type of subtlety. And I, so I get why it was cut out. I just, I really liked it in the book. That's all. Mm-hmm. I think also just the, my final little point on that is that when in the book Lee kills the Skraling, he's so cut up about it. And I don't feel that came across as well in this adaptation. He like he was he was a bit annoyed, but like it's less obviously like if you're killing the Skraling who is only there politically for the Magisterium and he comes out and follows him and tries to kill him like it's so much more menacing. And so it's like it's more reasonable to be like to justify it. And still Lee doesn't justify it. He goes I really didn't want to do that. Why the hell did you do that? Um, and then with the scientist shooting at him through a door as he's leaving, it's like, and then he, he comes back in. I don't know. He, like, having him be the scientist rather than this menacing person who's only there to control others makes it a little bit more morally weird. And so basically, Lee getting really upset by having to kill this magisterium enforcer is a more is a stronger character point than lee being upset because he had to kill an academic Mm -hmm. in my opinion Mm -hmm. i mean i feel like they were both pretty much self-defense but i i also feel like the moment where you really see how much uh the murder is weighing on lee is when he's talking to mrs coulter and she brings it up in the interrogation i'm her mother so? So she needs me. No, she doesn't. There are things that she just doesn't understand. See, I think there are things that you don't understand. The worth of a life would be one. Didn't you shoot a man dead this morning? Do you have children, Mr. Scoresby? No. And how can you possibly understand what it feels like I need to find her? You love her. I thought that was actually, like, Lin-Manuel Miranda's strongest acting moment of the series so far. Mm-hmm. Um, was, like, how how he kind of, like, recoils almost. And you can just, like, feel the self-loathing um, when yeah. she brings up that he killed a man. The whole interrogation scene was his best acting, possibly that yeah. I have ever seen him do. Yeah. Nice. Yes, I agree. <laughs> it was so good. It was really good. I like how even in our least favorite part sections, we can't help but be like very complimentary. <laughs> well, like like we were saying, yeah. it was a good solid episode. Yeah. yeah. We just happened to have yeah. a least favorites section. <laughs> yes. And we got to talk about something. Well, mine's pretty pretty fast because um it's just the we get to the end of the episode we're in lord boreal's bachelor pad 
and uh, uh-huh. that's all really great. But I don't like how quickly, and I think this is just a, a consequence of television and you know the length of episodes. I don't like how quickly the kids are like, "We'll do your dirty work. We'll we'll go, we'll do this side quest." You know, basically. Um, I I just uh, yeah I don't know. It didn't work for me in terms of the characters. Like I wanted more catharsis for how upset Lyra was. <clears throat> I wanted more recognition from Will about Boreal and just more um, anger and animus and just all of it was a little bit fast for me. Not, not enough catharsis, but that is a nitpick. Bring the knife to me and I'll give you what you want. Or do it. Good. Okay, life. That was the part when the episode was over. I was like, and maybe it's a good storytelling choice because I was like, ah, I need to watch the next one. So like maybe that was the point. Except I didn't watch the next one because I have integrity. So. <laughs> <laughs> I do plan to to finish maybe just the whole series this afternoon. We'll see. I mean, the whole series that we have access to. So two more episodes. Yeah, two more episodes. <laughs> so did we have any problematics? I didn't write this in, but I feel it in my soul. Thank you, Ellen. Oh, do you do you want to talk about it? No, it's, I I think I went on my whole rant last week, so this okay. week you can have it. Yeah, I mean, in this episode we get some important stuff going on with Mary and uh, the cave machine, um, and she kind of has a breakthrough by using the I Ching in the way that it's meant to be used, I guess, uh, as as like a tool for divination, um, but. Given that in the book, there is information about her relationship to the I Ching that we are not getting in the show so far, it makes it into something problematic because it's kind of like Orientalism. You know, Francis talked about this when we were um, covering the Subtle Knife book in terms of uh, Grumen, but like... Basically, when you have cultures that Western cultures don't understand very well, their religion and stuff like that, you can just kind of chalk it up to like Eastern mysticism is powerful and like, (laughs) you know what I mean? And that is like problematic because you're lumping huge amounts of culture and religion into this like they're magical people who are better than us at things because they're, you know, they're not really humans, basically. And so by not having her relationship to the I Ching in the show, using the I Ching is problematic. It's like when people talk about, I don't know, uh, ancestor worship as like the same religion or like Shinto as a religion, where it's like much, 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 much more complicated than that. And I mean, I, I can't profess to fully understand it not having been brought up in the uh, thing and not being a scholar but it's like like at the very base level if you understand the very basics of like ancestor worship throughout different cultures it's it's wildly varied there are some things which are like consistent but even they're, they're very very general points it's kind of 
convert uh, convergent evolution of culture and yeah it's just like <laughs> this, this does feel a bit like that it's like this could have been anything yeah this could have like been it, as you it said, could have been yeah, it could have been tarot or something. Cause like, it could have been something more Western in terms of divination that would be like culturally relevant to this character. Or we know that she was a nun, so she could have just been flipping through the Bible trying to find an answer, you know, because like she has nowhere else to turn. I don't know. Well, but, like, I feel like for the story, it could not have been the Bible. That's kind of yeah, the point. exactly. That like yeah. that's problematic yeah. uh, in in story terms. But like, and I want to make clear that like. I, the portrayal of how she uses the I Ching is like totally correct. They clearly did research. They thought about this choice. And like, I appreciate the way that it was done. I don't think it's disrespectful in its own terms of how it's presented, but by having her use it without any knowledge of her backstory, like that this is in the book, this is relevant to her as an individual. And yeah. it doesn't appear that way in this story and therefore, like, it's it's like appropriation. Yeah. It's not a huge deal, but like. Something that would have been easily fixed if they had cast a Chinese actress. Yep. Mm. That's like literally all they had to do. Again, just, nothing against uh, this actress, though. She's really good. I really do love her portrayal of Mary Malone. I just think it causes problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's that sums it up perfectly. She is excellent. She's doing a really good job in the role. And I think she plays it from every perspective except for that one perfectly. But unfortunately, it just makes less sense because of the character of Mary, particularly going through later in the books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She had a beautiful copy of the Book of Changes, though. I was like, where, where do you yeah. get that? Yep, that's a, a weird another weird when like they kind of did a close up on her her like I Ching box and it looked mm-hmm. old and yeah loved and used, but we got none in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like is it hers? Is it, you know, or is she using her chess set? We just don't know. And without that context, it creates this troubling thing that you have to point out so that it doesn't like subconsciously affect your experience and be like, of course, white people can talk about whatever religion they want to at all times and use in any way that they see fit. Of course, that's normal. She like, she could have, she could have a Chinese grandfather. Like it's completely reasonable for someone to have a Chinese grandfather and still look very, very Irish. Like that happens it's mm-hmm. it, like they just didn't bring any of it in. But yeah, yeah. Again, that's Actually, my problem. Yeah. One of my good friends um is a quarter Chinese and she's very white passing, so they could have done that. Yep. Yeah, one of my friends is half Irish, half Thai, and she <laughs> only in Thailand do they think that she's not Thai. <laughs> <laughs> they're always like who are you and she's like i speak thai <laughs> i am thai <laughs> yeah it's just a not a great choice but you know in pointing it out i feel like it somewhat nullifies its unconscious effect on us as an audience which is the only reason that i ever point these problematic things out i don't think you know for a story to contain problematic elements does not make it you know somehow a racist text or something like that it's just that you to purge the the 
unconscious effect that it can have on you as an audience member. You have to like have a dialogue with the text and like reflect on it. And then you're able to decolonize your thinking on it. Yeah. And like, to be clear, except changing the casting, I feel like there's no way that they could have gone that wouldn't have been problematic in some way. Right. Cause like, if you cast a white actress and have her be, you know, ethnically some proportion Chinese, like that's problematic. Um, having the I Ching in there as like an appropriative Orientalist thing, that's a little bit problematic. Changing it to ruins or some Irish tradition, that's kind of like whitewashing the book. Like I do yeah. like mm-hmm. yeah. that having the I Ching in there indicates that that like um i mean it makes the world feel less white and eurocentric and it it does give some sort of like feeling that dust is interacting with all humans not just white humans so like it's good in that respect um but yeah there's like once you make the decision to cast a white woman in that role you you kind of are damned if you do and damned if you don't in terms of of the decisions to make after that yep which comes which brings us back to the only solution to it which would yeah. be a different casting choice they again i want to reinforce that i really really like the job that they've done with mary and that the mm. actress has done like i can't remember her name for the life of me but i thought she did it really really, Simone? really well. <laughs> yeah that's yeah right. She's fantastic. I yeah. I love yes. her to bits, but um, yeah. Anything else? Otherwise, the episode is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> what oh. is uh, particularly important from, I'm stealing this from Francis's notes, um, is mm. that Yorick is in this episode. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. We get a little, a little Yorick. I love it. Bad boy. Seraphina Pekala sends good wishes to the Bear King. I send them back, but if it's help you're after, I cannot give it. I see the mountains are melting. The seals have depleted. My bears will starve. Ezreal's hole in the sky has damaged too much. I like what they're doing with that, um, and some of the things that they're doing with Mrs. Coulter really shows that they are tying together everyone's storylines because I feel like in the books, some people slash storylines just disappear for book two, but Oh, Hey, they're back for book three. And you're like, okay. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know? Yeah. So it's nice to see what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It does do like the, the tiny little bit of exposition there that, there is climate change happening because of Asriel's choice, right? Because like the mountains are melting and uh, and all of this stuff. So that's part of what that scene is doing. Is mm-hmm. like it's not just mm-hmm. that there's a giant light in the sky that the Magisterium is like. Hope nobody notices that. Uh, it's that it is like literally changing the planet. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Again, a nice uh, commentary on climate change and as uh as anya points out in her notes uh <laughs> it's basically the ozone layer <laughs> yeah and because well i 
I think it was Alan who pointed this out when we were originally discussing the book, um, but since the book was written in the mid-90s, the hole in the ozone layer was much more prescient at that time and was kind of like a more defining environmental issue than climate change itself. Um, and so it makes sense that that he would go for this like hole in the sky metaphor. Mm-hmm. One final thing I'd like to add just on the Mary academic side, because we've actually gone through most of my notes anyway. Um, don't tell academics to take a break. It just makes <laughs> them work harder. <laughs> I loved that scene. Like, I, I understand what you're saying, but I think that that was such a great scene because it gives Mary such depth. And yeah. it gives oh, her a character arc that she didn't yeah. quite have in the books. I, I feel like Mary in the books was all of her character arc was in the past and she kind of tells it to you, but we don't get mm. to see it. If, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So here I love that they're implying that she's this workaholic who needs to take a break and not to be too spoilerific, but by God, she's going to be forced to. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, hi. Hi. You forgot, didn't you? No. I would never forget my favourite niece and nephew coming to visit. I just got home, actually. We haven't had our snack today. Yeah, I feel faint in the car. Well, that is shocking. Let me see what I have. I haven't been shopping for a few days. Ah, here you are. Mine says muesli on it. With chocolate. It's really bad for you, I promise. Why are you always reading my mail? There has to be some way of finding out what's going on in your life. You look knackered. I'm not knackered. I'm just frustrated. I'm on the cusp of a massive breakthrough and they're going to kick us out of the lab in a few days. When was the last time you did something you enjoyed? What's going to happen if you take some time out from work? A break could lead to that breakthrough, couldn't it? I love that her sister barges into the house and then just immediately starts making tea. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> I think it like it shows that that level of familiar familiarity and like the strength of that relationship. And also it's just so British. Yeah. And also like it shows that this has happened before. This happens regularly. She calls in on Mary because she's worried about Mary. Because uh, there's something about Mary. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so she, you know, this is a regular thing. She comes in, she just makes the tea. She's like, stop fucking working all the goddamn time. Get some shopping in. Like, sort your life out. This isn't everything. And Mary's like, no, this is everything. I'm so, I do some calls here. <laughs> Yeah. And like the details in that scene are just so good. Like the the acting that the the actress does on her face when she's like, no, I didn't forget that you were coming over. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then like her interaction with her niece in the, the muesli bar, like it was just like so perfect. <laughs> yeah, it really, was really, really good. good. And I just like Mary better with a family because I, I mm-hmm. feel like in the book she mentioned that, you know, being a nun was what her family wanted or her family was happy with it. And that was it. You know, that was all that they were mentioned, even during bits. Spoilers. 
it has a similar effect to what we got with Will and his grandparents, like, which was a really big emotional deal for Will. And is, you know, we don't see that in the subtle knife. And it's like, oh, yeah, these are human beings that have like extended families and they have feelings about that. And you can like tell that Mary has like guilt around like, oh, yeah, I forgot about my family. But also like, I really want to go do this thing. And oh, man, I feel guilty about that, too. Right. <laughs> like. Uh, it's, it's so, it makes them richer in exactly the way that you're saying. Also, I love that Mary's sister's not ginger. Like this is such a common trope is that you've got the ginger person and then they go back home and everyone in the family is shocking red hair. Right. My brother's ginger. I'm not ginger. There's ginger (laughs) in my beard, but like, it's such a common trope and to see them just I, I don't know if it's intentional or not. It probably isn't at all. But, like, it's just a nice little touch. It's just like, yeah, in fact, like, this is a recessive trait. <laughs> like, it skips generations. It does weird things. It's not like she's going home to that classic trope of, like, the Weasleys where they're all shocking red hair. <laughs> like. I also love that the kids just have normal English accents. Um yeah. In contrast yeah. to the yeah. the Irish accents of of their mom and and aunt, oh, um, yeah. and sense. also y- you can't talk about ginger people this time of year because now I'm just imagining them as cookies running around. <laughs> what? Are you okay? Do you, need, do, you need, do you need to lie down? Ginger person? I'm sorry. Was- that means one thing to me, and it's delicious. Yeah. I was having the same thing. Gingerbread to me. man. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> not ginger person like (laughs) don't eat them (laughs) it's the only thing that ginger people are good for (laughs) alan did you want to talk like you've got two pages here is there something you did want to talk about oh i mean i just agree with everybody's picking out good stuff I, for me to talk about my thing is going to be like the religion philosophy thing. It's a Yes, go. This is your chance. Do the thing. I'm going to pour myself a cup of tea and sit back and listen. Well, there's so this I was very, very moved by the torture scene between Mrs. Coulter and Lee, which is a weird thing to say. Maybe I just love she's slapping people and I'm like, wow, I am emotionally moved. No, Um what emotionally moved me was the whole bit between Lee and Coulter where he is talking about his childhood and he is able to accurately describe her childhood as both of them have a history of violence that was done against them as children and uh, the different reactions that they've had to that and how I think that speaks to the themes of the story like overall but especially about the style of parenting that Mrs. Coulter showed us in episode two of the first season. And so like just all of that stuff just made me think about this very famous uh, Brazilian philosopher um, named Paulo Freire, which who I'm sure I just said his name terribly badly because I don't speak Portuguese. Uh, so sorry about that. But um, he wrote this very famous book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And pedagogy is just like a $10 word for the art of teaching, basically. Um, and so it's, it's about, um, it's a, it's literally about pedagogy. It's about teaching and cause he was a teacher and basically like 
he lays out in the book the idea that schools as a system of authority get you ready kind of program you to be an obedient citizen who is there to like not cause trouble and like support a culture of oppression and colonization in the culture more widely. And like you're taught to be submissive and obedient in school. Like that's the main thing school is teaching you. It's not math and the alphabet and stuff like that. The main thing it's teaching you is to shut up, sit down and do what you're told. And like, so that was a pretty radical thing to put out there. And um, he called it critical pedagogy and kind of set up an entire way of thinking about authority systems that have this thing called critical consciousness that is like expanded out into different fields of philosophy that you've probably heard of more recently, like critical race theory and stuff like that. When you apply his thinking to other models of authority and oppression, like it, it's very interesting the way that it shakes out. So you've probably heard of critical race theory and stuff like that, right? Um, I mean, in the sense that Republicans are terrified of it. Right. Well, any system <laughs> of authority is going to be terrified of it because Freire's entire position is that um, people who are in a place of privilege can have no place telling oppressed people what their experience is, that like it has to come from the people who are oppressed, educating the literally educating people who are oppressing them about what their experience is and then entering into a dialogue of like equality and like basically like his whole system says that systems of authority dehumanize us as people, um, oppressors and oppressed. And so like the classroom is his model where you have teachers and you have students and like, you know, the teacher has to like take away the autonomy and humanity of the student in that they have to like sit still, they have to like drink in knowledge from the teacher, but also it dehumanizes the teacher because they're not having a relationship with the student that's based on like any kind of human feeling or anything like that. It, you're just an instrument of the state conditioning people to be like obedient citizens, right? And so like you are being oppressed as you're oppressing other people and you're teaching them like how to be oppressed. It's like, it's a very, when you look at it through the lens that he presents in the book, it's all kind of very scary, but I think it lines up pretty well with the world building of his dark materials in terms of the magisterium. They're not looking, you know, you think about things like Balvanger, right? They're looking to take away your ability to make choices and you're going to be this kind of obedient, you know, philosophical zombie that we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually, I've read that book in both high school and in college, um, but it's been so long. I don't remember that much about it. And I haven't revisited it since I started actually teaching college. And mm -hmm. so I should probably go do that. <laughs> It's, you went to such good schools because like, I feel like everywhere I went, if, if you would have talked about this stuff at all, they would have been like, that is terrible. Uh, you need systems of authority or otherwise people would just murder each other all the time. 
then they'd also probably be like, yeah, moral, moral relativism literally doesn't exist, and um, we should all be using the biblical um, yes, moral Yes, same code. people. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. like, um... <laughs> Pro-death penalty, give me my guns, my Bible, and we need systems of authority because we're all terrible people. It's like, maybe you're a terrible person. Maybe that's what's going <laughs> Maybe you lack empathy. <laughs> Uh, I'm not using the actual examples I wrote down, so that's good. Um, but I think you guys get what I'm saying, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And okay. it's a good point as well. So I like, think in if you look back to season one and episode two, Mrs. Coulter like teaches Lyra, right? It, when she becomes like her daughter, even though she doesn't know that she's her daughter yet, Mrs. Coulter knows. And we can see through the way that she is trying to like, quote unquote, raise Lyra, that she wants her to be like this obedient creature that she like the way that Freire uh, lays it out. He calls it the banking model of teaching. So you're like depositing information into students as the teacher and they accumulate that information and then can demonstrate it to you in tests. And so she doesn't want Lyra to like pick out the own colors of her dress or how she's going to behave, you know, in front of different people. Mrs. Coulter wants to dictate everything about that to Lyra and have her be quiet and obedient and, you know, like not have a personality, basically, uh, so that, you know, that is being a good child. And the the reason that this kind of thing happens is exactly what Lee talks about because it happened to you as a child, then you will like perpetuate the system of authority again, according to Freire, uh, you'll do it unconsciously. And the reason for that is because within the system, there's no other way to become a human being. You don't have any freedom when you're an oppressed person. Right. And so the way that you get freedom is to become an oppressor. You have to like, work within the confines of the system of authority and climb up the ladder so that you have the extra freedoms that that uh, authority gives to you. But the only way to maintain those freedoms is to oppress everybody underneath you and like re-perpetuate the system. Basically, if you if you uh, have bad parents, this is the idea of the model, right? Um, if you have bad parents, then when you grow up and have children, you will behave the same way that your parents did and kind of redo the system because now you have like children to boss around and now you like, so you're a full human being. This makes you feel safe. This makes you feel like now you can't have anybody abuse you because you are the abuser. You are the oppressor. Um, but the, the reason this happens, according to him, uh, is because you do not have uh, an essential part of the process that he calls reflection, which is just exactly what it sounds like, where you stop and like think about it and you go, wait a minute, I was abused. I didn't like feeling like that. I didn't like how this went for me. So I'm going to do things differently and I'm not going to uh, force everybody to pay student loans when I have the power to get rid of their student loans, even though I paid mine off, uh, I'm going to, you know, extend to other people what I wish I had, uh, instead of like 
no, we have to keep the system the same because it's not fair that some people had to go through this bad thing. So I went through it. You should too. That same sort of thing is very much perpetuated by the sort of people who say, you know, you didn't have, you're not having it bad. We had it bad as if you deserve to have their problems. Right. It's, it's this sort of competition where you're like, no, no, we had it worse. And it's like, well, I mean, yes, in some ways, but also you can afford a house and like, I might genuinely never be able to. But of course, tell us about your particular, you know, like, I don't know, it's, it's de-prioritizing the current in favor of a, what's the opposite of rose-tinted, um, <laughs> shit-tinted, <laughs> like, past, and saying, oh no, it was terrible back then. It's like, well, yeah, but like, that doesn't mean that we deserve the bad things that happened to you. You Surely you were fighting. Why, why does it stop being important as soon as it's no longer happening to you? Yeah, well, the reason is it's exactly what he says, because it breaks down the system of authority, which is what gives you your humanity within the system. So, like, if you can't be the oppressor, like you were already oppressed, you already had to pay those bills. And now other people aren't going to have to pay them. You don't get your humanity. You don't get to be the oppressor. You don't get to be the person who doesn't have bills and gets to like go on the vacations and own the houses and all of that other stuff that you were watching people do. Now they don't have that bill either. And they have even more choices than you did at the same point in your life. And so that dehumanizes you within the system. It, it is like this is something that I think the left really doesn't understand when they propose these things, that they are that it is literally oppression within the authoritarian system to break down the authoritarian system, because you are taking the humanity of those people away. But you're doing it because that humanity sucks. It sucks. <laughs> it sucks so much. Like, d- Okay, like, yes, it is now illegal to, like, beat your children where you used to be able to do that. But that's because we don't want to beat children anymore. And, like, it's too bad that you got beat by your parents. But, like, it's better that nobody beats their children, you know, or they're not supposed to or that it's illegal, you know. Yeah, wouldn't you have preferred to not be hit with the belt? Yeah, it's it. you know, so like changing laws like that and, and stuff is um, part of the work that Freire talked about in it. And like he this is part of his legacy. And I know that he actually did have a legacy in the educational system of Brazil, which was very problematic and didn't work out um, because like he was trying to work within a system of authority that was like, well, you can't actually do the things that you're saying here. Uh, And so he tried to make things incrementally better and it it didn't really work out. So like a lot of people, uh, when they criticize this entire thing that I'm talking about, point out his career in the educational system after he wrote this and say like, well, all of his ideas were a failure, as you can clearly see. And it's like, okay, but like also he wasn't actually allowed to like set up classrooms where the teacher and the student were equals and where they learn from each other which is a model that we see happen in the previous episode where Lyra is teaching Mary Malone, who is the expert on dark matter particles about dark matter particles, right? Like she, in the system of authority, you have the PhD 
physicist who is like running a lab there who is like in charge. Right. And she should not be taught by anybody because she's the expert. She should only be taught by like the systems that she's investigating and like going through the information and like finding things from it. But instead she's taught by a child who is totally ignorant in particle physics because like Mary Malone is open to that because she treats Lyra like an equal. And so she is available to be taught by her because of that. And it's, that's exactly what Freire wanted to have happen in schools is to not have these distinctions between student and teacher so that everybody would have the availability to like learn new ways of thinking and doing things and knowledge would increase for everyone simultaneously. That is kind of what grad school is like, um, Mm -hmm. where like, yes, technically one person is the student and one person is the advisor, but if you're doing it right, you should know more than your advisor on your one specific area and they should be treating you like a peer. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But even, even in what you're saying there, there's like the reason that they should be doing that is because you know more than them. And so the banking model is still intact there. You're still preserving the kind of academic authority of like, well, this person has more knowledge, therefore they should be treated with respect. And Freire is like, ignorant children should be treated as equals to expert adults. By like, yes. that's just because they're all humans. I mean, it's, it's, yes, it depends, I think, on the particular situation, the dynamic, because it's not necessarily always a question of respect. You can have, mm-hmm. um, you can have lots of, lots of mutual respect within a system and still have someone who is more who who is teaching others like it's very hard to teach other people uh, a great deal about a subject you literally don't know anything about but also oh, yeah. i completely agree that in teaching you learn and you learn so much and you learn so much not just about the thing that you're teaching about but about other things about how people work about how people learn like the mm-hmm. whole time when i'm teaching i'm learning oh that went well oh that didn't go well or like i'm hearing you know a, a student who i'm teaching saying hey do you find it hard to talk to these people i find it hard to talk to these people because they seem so clever and you, you're thinking about it and like i haven't felt like that very often but also i'm an arrogant prick like <laughs> some people really feel that and like learning that your experience in the same place does not define other people's experiences of the same thing is actually like a big thing about becoming a good teacher is mm-hmm. that whole learning from other people learning from the students about what the students need and also accepting that students change they have evolved in a different cultural um time point than you did and so your experiences of learning become less and less relevant right well actually everything that you're saying there is exactly what reflection is right you are comparing your experience to other people's experience and you are like deconstructing your own preconceived notions and like comparing them to other people's experiences of you and of each other and then coming back and reformatting your approach after that 
like that is good pedagogy according to Freire. So like good on you. And you know, that is what, that is the utility of reflection within his system to break down these dynamics of oppressor and oppressed. And I think that that is what the episode is modeling with, I'm not self-consciously. I don't, nobody thought about this when they were writing uh, <laughs> these scenes, but I think that's what you see is the difference between Lee and Coulter is that Lee has reflected on his experience as an abused child and has come out of that as like, on the one hand, he has come out of it and been like, I shouldn't be a father. And it probably has a lot to do with him being alone all the time. Uh, because like he is on a certain level, like not comfortable with what he might become given the chance. Right. Um, whereas Mrs. Coulter is heavily invested in never feeling like an oppressed person again. And like her entire career is about not being vulnerable. You know, she's like, not married anymore. She's like very high ranking person who works with the magisterium. She's extremely powerful. She's an expert in her field. She's bulletproof in a lot of ways. And no pun intended for her having a thing with the cowboy. Um, (laughs) But she is, has not reflected on the way that that abuse is motivating all of that quest for invulnerability the way that Lee has. And I think that gives Lee access in this episode to like a strength that she doesn't have and that terrifies her, but that, and and this is really interesting to me that she recognizes she needs to make a real connection with Lyra because again, Lee treats Lyra like an equal. He doesn't, this isn't a child to him that he has authority over because he's an Mm -hmm. adult. He's not enforcing that oppressor and oppressed dynamic that she had in the second episode. Lyra is just another person and he loves her, you know, like a daughter. And, uh, and, but that to him, that means that he has to protect her, not control her, you know, not indoctrinate her into a system of authority that makes him feel safe. Instead, he like prioritizes her actual safety and humanity because he knows what it feels like to be in that system. And he doesn't want to repeat that mistake again because he's reflected on it in ways that Mrs. Coulter hasn't and therefore is re-perpetuating it. Yeah, I think also uh, it's important to mention the common thing that people who abuse people don't regularly recognize themselves as abusers Mm -hmm. and this is the kind of the first time when um mrs coulter is kind of looking at that and going oh shit maybe someone's being a better parent to my child than i am maybe i'm Mm -hmm. actually abusive and then she goes nah 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 totally (laughs) Well, I think that's part of what motivates her to let Lee go, or at least that's how I read it, is that, like, go, go find her, like, or protect her. Like, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Like, that's how I read it, is like, you're doing something that I can't do. And that, to me, what that choice says, if that's the reason that she's doing it, is that she 
is actually, this isn't about getting her stuff back, you know, and Lyra running away. She loves Lyra, but she is such a broken, damaged person that she can't love her the right way. Like she's, this is the best that she can do right now. She's on a journey. She's trying to get better. I think this is why she left the magisterium on a certain level. You know, like she walked out from, from McPhail is to go get Lyra. It's not, it's not just about the way that it comes across in the book where she's like consolidating power and like, you know, on uh, being this like Uber villain, she, her internal motivation, it seems like to me is genuine in her love for Lyra. She just like tragically cannot do the right thing because she hasn't done the work on herself to like become a better person to see what she needs. I completely agree with you. And that's kind of what I've been wanting to talk about for a lot of this time. I think you're spot on that. Uh, TV show Mrs. Coulter is more sympathetic than book Coulter and her love for Lyra is more clear in the text. Like, yes, it's a fucked up love, but I think it's more obvious that there is a real love there. While I was reading the books, the whole time I was kind of wondering, does Mrs. Coulter actually love Lyra or not? Like, I couldn't tell... (laughs) how much of what was going on was like her lying to other characters or lying to herself um, versus, or, you know, like an unreliable narrator type thing. Whereas I think in the show, they're really trying to show that she does have this imperfect love for her daughter. And there is, there is some like real, emotional bond that keeps pulling her back to Lyra. Um, And that is why I love them rearranging everything that happened at the observatory so that Lee gets captured so that they can have this confrontation so that Mrs. Coulter gets put in that position after being told by the shitty bartender or whatever. Um, So she gets to make that decision to free Lee instead of Lee using the ring to just escape in his balloon Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, Like it goes down in the book. And so, yeah, that was like one of the questions that I wanted to ask is, do you guys think that Mrs. Coulter really loves Lyra? And do you think the answer is different for the show than the book? And for me, I think that yes, she definitely does. And yes, that's also like quite different from the impression that I get from the books like I think I think book Mrs. Coulter is more deluded into in certain moments maybe convincing herself that she loves Lyra but that's not really what's motivating her at any point whereas here I feel like she is actually being motivated by her love for Lyra Um, and it's like especially because Mrs. Coulter you know, like, she's a very proud person. And the fact that Lee beats her in that interrogation battle, like, there's no way that she would be humble enough to let somebody like that go if there wasn't something, like, really powerful and compelling to make her do that. Like, she is so pissed that Mm -hmm. Lee can see through 
to like the real person inside of her shell and manipulate her in the same way that she usually does with everyone else around her. Like she's flummoxed Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and pissed. And so, and so I think it would have to be like something really incredible for her to, um, to then let him go despite them kind of being at odds. So I thought that was like my favorite adaptive change um, and why forgive the bartender being kind of clumsy and and all of that. I oh, think yeah. that she does love Lyra, certainly in the show, and I think she does in the book. I will say more on that possibly in the spoiler section. Um, but she thinks she she loves Lyra, but she's crap at it. <laughs> and yeah, that's I think what that's I think kind too. Of quite important. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think Lyra might be the only person she loves and she just doesn't know how to do it. Mhm. And she doesn't love herself. Yeah, definitely. Oh no, yeah. Definitely. But I I think her not loving herself is partially because of like all this stuff about oppressor and oppressed and like yeah, like she was definitely. taught, literally taught that it's okay to like beat you. Like the person who is supposed to love you the most and protect you the most in the world like beat you and then so that just tells you that you're worthless like right off the bat and then you know you like you internalize that not that i'm like speaking from personal experience of self-loathing based on (laughs) this exact situation but like if you don't reflect on that and like start to deprogram yourself and like it will cause serious problems of like self-hatred that when you have children again not based on very personal experience that i've definitely gone through you will like work out your self-hatred on people who have your genetics, you know, and who like exhibit behaviors that are very much like you because they are related to you. And then like you re-perpetuate the system all over again. And like, I see that so beautifully illustrated in this episode. I was very moved by it. So like, yeah, totally. She hates herself. And that is like a source. I think the source of her problem with Lyra because Lyra is like a lot like her parents, you know? And so like you see yourself in there and you're like, oh, there's a person I hate. Like how, you know, like that's a huge problem for you being a parent to that person. Absolutely. I think it's also important to keep in mind that uh, like, A, okay, maybe I'm talking more in the book here because the abuse that Mrs. Coulter has suffered is not canon in the book. Mm-hmm. But so in the book, at least, and arguably in the show, she is truly an evil fucking bitch. You know, mm-hmm. like she's a bad person, but I still think she loves Lyra. Yeah. You know, and it's in in the book, at least again, we don't know why she's evil. And I kind of like the idea that maybe she is just evil. You know, mm-hmm. She, mm-hmm. she wasn't abused. She's just, well, I don't know. It's not so interesting because her relationship with her demon does hint towards self-hatred, even in the book where we get less of her. But mm-hmm. it, I don't, it, all this talk about whether or not she loves Lyra and how they've made her more sympathetic. Please do keep in mind that she has killed children. She didn't give a single shit about them. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, like, I do believe 100% she loves Lyra. I also think she's evil. But oh, yeah. I think, well, I'll talk about more in spoilers. 
I think that like the show is a little bit more psychologically complicated, um, which we've talked about before. But I think for like morality, if you're talking about, I mean, good and evil are like really loaded words, right? Right, but somebody who murders children is evil. I just yeah, yeah, that's no, not complicated. There's no gray. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think to make like evil choices, like they have to be choices, right? She she must have been able to not murder children, right? Um, and so that's like an important aspect to uh, to evil is is like the ability to have made a different choice, and I think. In this episode, by showing that Lee went through a similar thing as her in the show and that he came out very differently, I think that highlights how evil she is. Instead of like, yes, it makes us sympathetic for her because, wow, she had like a terrible past, but also she could have worked this out. You know, like she could have worked on this and been a better person and actually been there for Lyra. I mean, I said the same things about Asriel. You know, he is not working on his shit either. And he like in the first episode, he does a lot of stuff to like block his connection to Lyra that is like unhealthy and makes him a bad person. But like the reason it's a bad person to me morally is because you could have there's another choice. You could have done it differently and you chose not to do that. And so like that's where your badness lies, not just in the actions of like abusing your child or like murdering lots of children. It's that you didn't have to do those things. I really love the foil between uh, Mrs. Coulter and Lord Asriel, which I'm sure I've talked about before, but like how they're, how Lord Asriel is really seen as this good guy who's making the right choices and doing the good thing, but also a child murderer, you know, like (laughs) I feel like the story tends to forget that, that he, he murdered a child also. So Mm -hmm. They're both kind of shits. And for a worse reason. (laughs) Yeah. For a YA book. (laughs) Yeah. And like, if he had just maybe talked to Boreal about a window, you know, like, (laughs) no fucking reason to do it. I think he would have done it anyway. Just to prove that he could. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he liked the idea of the Magisterium not being able to deny it. Mm hmm. So speaking of Boreal, mm-hmm. um, good, good. one of my other favorite um, adaptive changes, I guess this isn't quite as big of a thing, um, but we talked in our book discussion a lot about how um, Boreal and this Charles Latram character being an old white dude um, is, it it ends up um, saying some like pretty powerful and interesting things about like aristocracy and old money um, and power. And it's like a commentary on all of those things in modern British society and how um, I was kind of like interested to see what the show was going to do with all of that, um, given that they cast Boreal as like a younger, beautiful black man. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like, the actor is doing an amazing job, but it was just like, huh, like that's not going to hit the same way. Um, you mm-hmm. can't, you can't put him in like a named old manor house and like have it mean the same thing. Um, and so I loved the way that they made Boreal like 
tech new money instead of aristocratic old money. Um, so, like, they have mm. him driving a Tesla instead of a Rolls Royce. Um, they have him in, like, a super fancy modern townhouse instead of, an you know, like, manor. A, an old manor. Um, and, yeah, so I thought all of that was just super well done. Um, his acting is on point, as always. I especially love the, like, hand acting that he does when he's driving on the steering wheel. If you yeah. watch his hands, he's, like, reacting to everything that Lyra is saying. It's just so good. I really loved his line about the seatbelt. Yeah, Lyra's battle with the seatbelt <laughs> is so good. Well, the battle's good, but also him explaining how to use it is is so good because it's so clear that he knows that she's not from this world. But again, he yeah. says it in a way yeah. that it wouldn't spark in her mind that he's not from that world. Exactly. Ooh, yeah, that so didn't even good. occur to me. Yeah, because like, of course, if he wasn't, if he was an actual person from modern, our modern world, like yeah. he wouldn't think to explain how to use the seatbelt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You look lost. Can I give you a lift somewhere? Are you sure? Hey! Actually, yes. Where to? Summertown. Seatbelt. It's on the right-hand side. Pull it across you. Did you find anything more about those skulls you were looking at? I found it fascinating. I asked about them after we spoke. Are you okay? Um, yeah, it's just, I, I can't be late. My mum will worry. I'm sure she will. I think I know where I am now. You can just drop me off wherever you like. I'd rather take you home, save anyone worrying about you. It's fine, honestly. Just let me out. Just let me out! Please, Mr. Latchman, let me out. next time but like as far as lyra knows this is the only type of car with seatbelts. yeah <laughs> right. you know like it, it's really good she's just like in the moment trying to you know she's super out of breath her muscles yeah. are super sore like she's panicking anyway yeah it was such it was very good in the comment about her mother oh sorry <sighs> so good yeah yeah, all these adaptive choices around Boreal were were really well done and like yeah, made me very happy about their follow through. Like they clearly thought all this stuff out that we were a little bit anxious about um mm -hmm. when we read the book. And I think it's perfect. Um before we get too far away from talking about Lee, I just I also just wanted to say I really love Hester. Yeah. She's so good. I love like so I think lovely. 
Yeah, I think in the book they describe her physically as having like scars and having a ripped up ear. I mm. think I'm remembering that correctly. Mm-hmm. And so I never really thought about her being a cute, fluffy bunny. <laughs> you know, but she's Not bunny. so. You know what I'm saying. But she is so cute and so fluffy, and I like the idea of this cowboy with a gun having this cute, fluffy soul, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, and, but also that she's the practical side of things. Mm-hmm. When she's yeah. yelling yeah. at him to wake up at the beginning, and he's just like, ugh. I don't know. It's so good. <laughs> I love cute um, red panda pan, but I think the digital creation that I want to hug the most is Hester. And I think that says a lot about who Lee is. I love Hester. I think she's just the perfect balance. Like, it's not just how she looks, it's her personality. It's just a perfect balance of the things that Lee needs to keep him going forward. Mm -hmm. And she's a little bit, like, relentless about that sometimes, where she's like, no, you know, you're not giving up. Let's go. And that's the sort (laughs) of thing where, as a complete human without a demon you kind of have to tell yourself sometimes you're like okay look that's that's shit let's get up go and it's really hard i much i would much prefer to have a hair sitting on my bed being like okay you need to get up come on up we go let's go (laughs) so good i love her so much i just want to pet her ears and (laughs) can you make me a cup of coffee hester please (laughs) That is something that I noticed this season a lot more is how like, and it's interesting to reflect on it in exactly the way that you're saying, like in that first episode, when Lee is there with the witches and the two queen demons are talking to each other. And I was like, man, those are both like big raptor bird of prey. And Hester is a rabbit, like literally their food and the way, like just the dynamic of what that says on a lower level, you know, about what's going on with the scene, but also that like Lee doesn't have like a badass panther or something, right? Like he has a prey animal that is like very common. And we we get this bit about his backstory that totally makes sense to me now that like if he grew up abused and like did all that reflecting that really like deep down in his heart, he is this cuddly little animal with all this like badass leather and six shooters on his hips because like he had to be that guy, you know, but like deep down, Mm. he's not that guy. I love that. Yeah, I agree. Good old Hester. (laughs) The actress is really good too. Yes. I did have one other thing to say about Lee, um, which is I liked the bit at the very beginning of the episode where we get to see Grumman kind of summoning Lee um, with some magical, metaphysical something or other. Um, he has one ring to bind him. Yeah. yeah. It's weird. <laughs> um, so we, in the books, we don't find out about that until much later. And I just, mm-hmm. I like that they're front loading that here now. And I'm... <laughs> Just because I haven't, I'm, like, a bit forgetful. I'm trying to remember, what's the, like, in-text reason that Lee is looking for Grumman besides being summoned? Oh, that's a great question. There's one person (laughs) in the world that can answer that for you, and that's Philip Pullman, and he's never answered it for you. (laughs) Okay, okay. I was, like, trying to remember 
if it was in the text, like if there was a good reason or not. Because like I was like, is it in there? And I just don't remember it. Or he's just like, I think maybe Grumman's alive, even though everybody says he's dead. So I'm going to go find out. I think that'll help. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, I tenuously got that he was looking for Grumman because Grumman might be the only person who can tell him where Lyra might be. But it's very strange that he goes to Grumman. For, like, it's it's a weird decision. The, the, okay. okay, the fact that Pullman puts in the ring thing and that he was summoned makes it make sense because it does come out of fucking nowhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I do love those parts just in stories in general where you look at someone and you go... What? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Again, Cabin in the Woods vibes. Yeah. Right. Like, I'm, it, it is, in the book at least, it's very hand-wavy. Like, this is why he searched out Grumman. But I'm glad it was there, because otherwise, I'm talking yeah. to some witches. I'm going to go find this dude who's dead. <laughs> it's going to help us in this war. What? No. This Can is... you imagine if he was dead and then he just spent the entire yeah. rest of the series just going around <laughs> like, oh, no, not here. I guess I'll try the next village. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> they get back together. They're like, you did what, Lee? What have you been doing this whole time? Jesus, what? <laughs> like, the first thing we, we told see you he was dead. In this series is literally this man's severed head. And then Leah's like, I'm going to go find him. <laughs> hey some people live through having their heads being severed yeah <laughs> like obviously it all worked out and blah 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 but you know it makes no sense yeah yeah it really oh, that's funny although actually is that a spoiler no it's because Grimman? he's like uh, maybe what i think it's fine uh, i don't know yeah maybe no, it's too late now that was that too was late. all too good <laughs> I was going to say, this is like, speaking of pedagogy, this was one of those moments where I, f- I was feeling like a student in class, like, I don't understand what's going on. Should I raise my hand and ask? Like, I don't want to seem stupid. <laughs> but if I have this question, like, probably other people have this question, too. Fuck it, whatever. I'll just ask it anyway. <laughs> well, thank you for asking. Yeah. <laughs> it gave us the opportunity to go back to that, which I always enjoy, so... The best thing about that ring scene is the way that he makes wind, because that is he makes wind. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what I like about him. I like that you just spent like 30 minutes talking about this really involved philosophy and then made a fart <laughs> joke. That's really good. Yeah. The dichotomy of the human spirit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I feel That's every me. important and dense philosophy should end with like a really vulgar joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did we have anything else we wanted to talk about before we wrap up and move on to spoilers? Um, I've given acting kudos to a lot of different uh, people in this episode, and I did just want to point out my favorite Will moment from this episode, which is when he comes through the portal and he sees Lyra sitting on the bench and he starts out being so mad at her Mm -hmm. um, because he's been searching her for so long in Sagatsa. And then he just like on a dime turns and becomes sympathetic when he sees her crying. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought that was, that was just a really powerful scene. What are you doing just going off like that? What happened? What's wrong? I've lost it. 
Lost what? Really feel me till someone took it. But we need it. Without that, we'll never find my dad. I know. And that's not everything. What? When I went to see the scholar, the police were there asking about you. They must have spotted us yesterday. We need to go back to Chittagatsi, now. No, we can't leave without the Elithiometer. We can't do anything without it. Do you have any idea who took it, then? There was this man I met at the museum. He gave me a lift. Wait, Lyra, the card. Yes. He gave me his card. I loved all of their interactions in this episode. I think they're doing a very good job of setting mm -hmm. those two up as like joint main characters, mm -hmm. you know, and like, and their, their scenes together are very much like, like they're not just jumping in to 100% trusting each other, which is great. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're building a relationship between the two of them, which I think it, and it's just working out well. They're doing a good job. That's that. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Writing, acting, good job. And then I guess the one other thing that I wanted to bring up um, was just that, like, because we're like watching and recording these ahead of time, we don't necessarily have access to all of the like promotional videos and stuff at the same time um, that people who are are watching these on the normal release schedule. Um, and so I think this past week um, we got a hold of some videos from the His Dark Materials website that were really, really cool showing some um, behind the scenes stuff for like how they built the set of Sagatsa um, that was like really amazing. And some of the like hidden world building that went into the design mm -hmm. of that. Um, and like we talked about Pan being a red panda um, and, and that actually there's like a whole uh, there's like a juice company or something with these like berries that they made up and the logo is a red panda. So, you know, like when Pan is, is becoming the red panda, he's actually, you know, like mirroring the world around them. Yeah. Um, and we see him be a magpie in this episode when he turns yeah. into a bird. Yeah. So magpies. Good. Yeah. 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 Let's cool. put that link in the show notes because I think yeah. it's, it's really worthwhile to explore. Yeah. It was if you're a fan of behind the scenes videos, this one was really good about how they designed Chitagatsi. Uh side note, I really love our commitment to all four of us pronouncing Chitagatsi differently and differently yes. from how they say it in the show. <laughs> I never want us to change. I, I love when Caitlin says things that I'm thinking but I'm too scared to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was also thinking <laughs> I mean, that's the problem with books is that sometimes if you just like get say it a certain way in your head, then it doesn't matter like what else happens yeah. after that. Like it yeah. is that way. I mean, uh Hermione was able to make that switch, <laughs> but nothing else ever. <laughs> wow. Wow. <Hermione. laughs> um yeah. no, and I think too <laughs> I don't know how much we talked about this. Um on the episode or just in our chat, but the set for Chitagatsa is so Oi, good. I was just saying, I like that we all say it differently. <laughs> um, no, but I think 
uh, like when I was watching that episode, I was like genuinely wondering like how much of that was a real location or a set that was built or CGI. Um, Cause it all just felt so real and seamless and also magical in a way like otherworldly. Yeah, and so that's different from a- any city that we have been to. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. that behind the scenes video, I think just really explores that in depth and shows like all of the careful attention to detail that went into that. I was just going to say in the same video, I really, really liked that. I felt very affirmed when they talked about the influence of Escher on the design of uh, Chiquetta. And oh, like, yeah. that's like, that was something I'd picked up on in my notes from the very first episode. I don't think, I actually think I said it in the show, but um, they were very Escherian. And then he speaks about how the set designer loves Escher and really wanted to kind of incorporate that, incorporate that whole feeling of uh, lots, like lots of stairs, a little bit hard to parse uh, architecture. And he did it perfectly because it obviously came across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like that. And then the other video that I really liked um, was there was one about the CGI effects and and the puppets that they use um, to have the actors act off of with the demons. Um, I think it goes about what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, just like how good the demon work is this season. Um, And they also they talk a little bit about the the bear battle in season one and how that took them six months to complete. And, and was like, they really saw that as like the climax of season one. And, and it was where a lot of their effort went and it kind of, it made me wonder if maybe that's why the demon work in season one wasn't as good was just cause they were putting so much of their, their like effort and expense into the bear fight. And then in season two, since there's no big bear fight, they can kind of distribute that more evenly throughout the season. Right. Spoilers. Probably that there's no bear fight at the end. That There's no bear fight. I, I mean, no, no, I was just saying like next thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 you mean oh, actual- yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were calling me out. Okay, well, if you want to avoid spoilers, now is the time to say goodbye. Next time, we'll be talking about episode four, Tower of Angels. If you like our show, please take some time to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at StrangelyLiteral. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at InferiorCaitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at FrancisWindrum. You can follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, please send us an email to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And now for some spoilers. Spoilers! Everyone special! Yeah. Spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, who wants to start? I like what they're building here in terms of like motivations for Mrs. Coulter, uh, getting into a converse, uh, confrontation with Boreal eventually. Of course she kills him in the book. We don't know if that'll happen in the show. I really kind of love him and would like for him to stick around, but we'll see. Um, in the book, it feels like she's taking out a rival and just kind of like, 
you know, doing the Highlander thing of uh, absorbing all of his lightning into her body and then like becoming more powerful. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) But, (laughs) but like here, it feels like what we were talking about earlier that she loves Lyra and Boreal is using Lyra. He's manipulating her and putting her into dangerous situations and not telling Mrs. Coulter that like, I have Lyra, I'm keeping her safe for you. So like the reason that she would be angry with Boreal is because of the way that he's endangering Lyra. And like, this is a better motivation, I think, than power. And it's interesting because in the book, it didn't even feel like, um, like the Highlander thing, like you were saying, it more felt like, well, I've gotten everything I could from this dude. Right. I don't want to talk to him again. (laughs) No reason to keep you around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it will be interesting to see how they play that out. Again, but again, I thought that they were, remember in season one, I thought that they were like foreshadowing that whole blowing up the station with flower thing. And then absolutely nothing ever came of that. Right. Yeah. So right. let's, I don't know. Maybe we should not assume that they're doing what we think they are doing. It would be cool if they don't kill him. But like if. Yeah, if they're enemies, I think this is a better reason to be enemies. Yeah, and remember, I mean, just because you kill somebody in book two does not mean we're not going to see them in book three. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very true, yes. Mm -hmm. So my spoiler question um, is more of a world-building question, but one that can only be asked in the spoiler section. Right. Um, And it's one that I didn't really think to ask while we were reading the book because... I was kind of unspoiled at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but why do the specters say stay in Sagatsa and not creep into the other worlds too, right? Because the specters are created whenever the knife cuts through the fabric between worlds. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like the specters should be able to go into either worlds is unless there's like something weirdly asymmetrical about Sagatsa itself. Um, well, they're on vacation. I mean, Sagatsa <laughs> yeah. is really nice. Would you rather go to England or fake Italy? Clearly, yeah. fake Italy. Um, no, I'd rather go to England. I hate the heat. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Except it rains. Oh, and I love time. England. So yeah. Uh, it's anyways, right. uh, it, it's okay. Okay, <laughs> we're allowed to have different opinions here. It's anyways. Um, so I, I don't think we ever get like a canon answer about this. We get hints mm-hmm. and I can give you what I think it is. So okay. I assume. Okay. So yeah, specters are made when you, when they cut in with the knife. And I assume that means they are made in the world that they are cutting from and not the world they are cutting to. Ooh. I would I assume that that's just my assumption, right? Um, and I only assume that because there are so many in whatever world Chitagatsi is in. I see. So what that means is that next episode, I'm assuming when Will cuts back into Chigatsa from our world, that there's now a specter running loose in regular Will's Oxford. I mean, if that happens oh. next episode. Just eating people. Yeah. So, but the thing <laughs> is... If it follows the book, yeah. Now, what... I do think the books hint at the idea that there are specters in our world. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't dive yeah. delve into it very much, 
but it, he will talks about how his mother's men- mental illness presents itself in some ways, not a hundred percent similarly to people trying to uh, fight off the specters or, or some, I, whatever. I don't want to get into it. Um, yeah. Okay. No, that, that kind so, yeah. of answers my question. It was just something that I, I never thought about at this point when we were reading the subtle knife. Right. Um, but now that I've finished the Amber spyglass, um, it occurred to me as I was watching. So why they don't go through the windows? Maybe they do. I don't know. It might just be path of least resistance. Like, Hey, there's people here. We're going to eat these people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I genuinely, I don't know, but from what it seems like, the books say is that there are specters in other worlds, just way, 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 way less of them. And for some mm-hmm. reason, outside of Chitagatsa, you can't see them. They're just, right. you know, they're maybe why some people go brain dead. You know, that type of thing. Yeah. Okay. And maybe they're like, you know, they're like pythons or something. They don't have to eat very often. The only reason why it's a big problem in Chitagatsa is just because there's so many of them. Yeah. It's like that thing of like insurance companies tell you like most accidents happen near your house. It's like it's not that your house is more dangerous. It's just the place you leave and go to the most, you Mm -hmm. know, like there's more specters there because that's where most of the portals are made. And um, we we actually don't know anything about what the specters are or if they are, quote unquote, alive. Do they need to eat to remain in existence? Who knows? Right. Yeah. Or do they just have the urge to eat, and mm-hmm. but they don't oh, actually need point. to? Or are they like some kind of cosmic entropy that like is the opposite of dust or something? You well, know, like they eat dust. I would say something. that that's kind of exactly what they are. Yeah. Gotcha. So it's a good question. We just don't have solid <laughs> answers. And I personally kind of like that we don't have solid answers. Yeah, I think it agreed. makes them creepier. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They're, they're terribly creepy, and I think they're very creepy in the show actually which i really like because they're meant to be this unknowable not evil just or not like malicious evil but like natural evil Mm -hmm. yeah implacable yeah yeah like Mm. zombies and stuff right yeah like you can't negotiate with the specter she will be like no listen well we must come to books mrs coulter can so right 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 it seems like yeah bullshit to be fair yeah no it is bullshit (laughs) i agree we yeah 100 percent we we did talk about that, but it'll be interesting to see if they just drop that or if they do something else. I don't know. It'll be interesting. I, I could see like controlling them like the way that Grumman seems to, you know, like if you're powerful and you can put the whammy on them, I think that's fine. But if it's like, listen, let me reason with you, then that. Yeah, that is some bullshit. That yeah. is not good. I'm really hoping they drop that. And and Mrs. Coulter, yes. maybe just like if she kills Boreal. She like tricks him into it, into like being trapped in a room with them or something like that. But she didn't kill Boreal with it. Yeah, yeah. She but let she, his she demon poisoned get eaten. him. Oh, she did poison no, him. She, Shit, you're right. Yeah. She kills the witch that way. Yeah. Right. Okay. Thank you. But still, yeah. Yeah. She does well. I think that she, she should just like tie her up outside or something and let them do it. Yeah, something like that. Something. I do hope we get to see a Spectre attack. And yeah. I hope it is fucking terrifying. Oh, we have to, right? They can't build all this up and then be like, eh. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I, yes. I don't mean I hope we see like a bunch of them and some humans and then it swirls around. I hope we see like one specter eat one human and we get to like really feel how sh- 
how bad it is. Yeah. So I think it was interesting in the letters how they specifically had Will's father mention the summer solstice date. That might be a mm. reason that Will associates it with things. I think in the books, it was Lyra who came up with the date that they go to the bench. Mm-hmm. But interesting that it came up, I guess. That's yeah. probably intentional. Yeah, that's like it's such a big thing in the books. Mm-hmm. That it must have been intentional. Anyways, so I like that they keep um, these fun, or not fun, I guess. I don't know, these hints that I like that they're foreshadowing things. Mm-hmm. Even in these small ways. Tiny but, details, yeah. Yeah, no. So my next point, I really loved Lyra talking about Roger specifically in the movie and how she wanted to see him again. And wanted to apologize to him and all those things because I feel like in The Subtle Knife, Roger just never comes up. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. in book three, when she's like, we should go to the land of the dead because you want to find your dad and I want to talk to Roger. And it's just like, oh, you do? You didn't seem all that uh-huh. torn up about <laughs> it. <you know>? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like, he's kind of, yeah, he's, like, he's been dead a little while now. She's just yeah. doesn't care. Eh. So, I think they bring it up every episode because like the episode opens with her like Pan is like, we can't do this. Like, yeah, the and she's like, we have to for Roger. And then Pan's like, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like in the book it was like I saw it in her character development that she was thinking about Roger, but they never really talk about him. So I think they're mm-hmm. doing a good job of keeping keeping it in her mind and us knowing that it's in her mind. Yeah. And. The acting is so good, and I feel like, I mean, I don't think Lyra is quite as unlikable as Francis does, but (laughs) if you did have that opinion, I feel like this is one of those scenes where you, like, really sympathize with Lyra and kind of, like, it makes you forgive a little bit some of her more, like, bratty and self-centered behavior because it makes you realize that like she does care about other people and she is like all of her her like strong-willed stubbornness is like motivated by this um you know experience that she had that did involve like caring about someone else yeah okay i'll give you that one (laughs) (laughs) I do love the way she just like eats his popcorn and then takes it from him though. Oh, it's so good. If you're gonna, it's so good. <laughs> I do feel like it's like, you know, one of those things if they were a couple or something and he would know that about her and like make her her own popcorn and then sit there with his, she would grab his and have two bowls of popcorn, you know? Like I just I don't yeah. know. When I saw that, I was like, that is perfect. I love it. And okay, so something that I added in when we were having our conversation about Mrs. Coulter earlier about how she hasn't done that reflection on herself. I think that that is very interesting because in the books, in book three, there's a couple of bits where Mrs. Coulter realizes that she is evil. And this is why she is evil because she has to save Lyra. And this is how this is what's going to give her the ability to do so. And so I Yeah. <laughs> um 
like around in the book, it's around lying in particular. Like she realizes mm. that she is the best liar in the whole fucking existence. And she is going to lie to Metatron, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like Darth Vader. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like I became evil to save my child. And then in saving my child and sacrificing myself, I redeemed myself. Well. Well, not. And then I get Mrs. to fall Coulter. forever. I'm Yeah. yeah Mrs. Coulter's <laughs> fate is a little bit more. Then I mean, Vader just got a good old death and got to be a, a force ghost. <laughs> Mrs. Coulter's well, kind yeah, of fucked he, for eternity. Not yeah. just any force ghost, a young, sexy force ghost. Oh, <laughs> let's not talk about that, please. I still find you don't it quite think Yoda is sexy? <laughs> oh, sorry. I still find it quite appropriate that um, he, di- he dies by having his mask taken off. And I'm like, oh, that feels really accurate for right now. Oh, God. I completely derailed this. I'm sorry, Caitlin. Like, I really like the point you're making is what I was trying to say. Um, I agree. So, yeah, I like that there that that implication that she didn't do the work on herself that she needed to because of fate, because she has to be evil. Yeah, that it comes back into itself in a teleological way. I was just going to say cool. teleology. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah, bingo. <laughs> Thank God we hadn't said it yet today. Yeah. Just sliding in at the end. It's funny. I listen to a lot of philosophy podcasts, and anytime anybody says teleology now, I notice that I'm like, ha! And then I'm like, oh no, wait, this is this is appropriate, actually. <laughs> uh, can't have one of our podcasts without a little bit of tea loss. Right. And a lot of tea. <laughs> I finished my pot of tea and like a while ago, and I'm really to sad fair, about it. To be fair, we did one and a half podcasts. So. Yeah, yeah. I know. I've just been sitting <laughs> yeah. here looking at my teapot, like I know you're empty, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Literally the same. <laughs> yeah, the teapot is a lie. All right, so that is it for this week. I'll we'll talk to you all next week. And remember, when you get out of a car, have your goddamn bag. Sorry. Oh shit. I ter- I move us on. Sorry. I forgot. Um, I was I was checking that I wasn't lying about the woman who plays Hester. I am oh. not lying. Okay. <laughs> or that I hadn't like mixed it up with somebody else. <clears throat> oh hey, look, uh, we got it. We got another outtake. Yeah. <laughs> Incognito, Lord, Lord. Fuck me. I'm surprised you didn't say bored L'Oreal by the end of that. Oh, for fuck's sake, that was bad. <laughs> I think I think bored L'Oreal is what my brain wanted to say, but and I was having to. Anyways, who cares? And remember, bored L'Oreal, <laughs> fight me IRL. <laughs> Come to London, fight me. As soon as that's legally possible. Yeah. In a cinema, I'll do it. Popcorn <laughs> fight with popcorn. Popcorn fight. <laughs> I think it's the last three seasons of this podcast, including this one, that you've mentioned that you've been to a working observatory. Yep. What? I've noticed that too. Everybody, Anya has been to a working observatory. She knows about telescopes. She will tell you. At great length. 
Oh my god. There's a good chance we've talked about it off recording also. <laughs> maybe. Maybe here and there. I think oh. I think it's actually in her Twitter bio. <laughs> oh my god. Anya, I love you. I'm not doing this to you. Thank you, Alan, my yeah. one true friend. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm only mean to people I like. <laughs> I just yeah. I'm not being mean. Just oh, oh, I am 100%. We're do being you, dicks right now. Do you, do you know what else you can observe? The sky in an observatory, which is where... <laughs> okay, I'll stop now. And now I'm seeing red, as in a whole page of red text. Uh, we don't have to... I just put my stuff first because it's the most important, but we don't have to do it first. <laughs> Sorry, I, I misheard you in the middle saying uh, you said Fieri, and I, I heard it as Fieri, and I was thinking, why is the mayor of Flavortown all of a sudden oh, I know. Is it like, doing philosophy? When, <laughs> when I was going over this in my head, I was like, I have to be so careful not to talk about Guy Fieri um, <laughs> in my terrible Midwestern accent. Loaded fries, loaded with moral <laughs> principles and uh, deconstruction of the patriarchy. Yeah. It's, um, Actually, he recently did some quite good tweeting about pretty much precisely that. So <laughs> surprisingly God. accurate. I feel like there's a good satire Twitter account in there somewhere. <laughs> Guy Fieri's modern, <laughs> modern philosophy. Pedagogy. Yeah. There's got to be like a very narrow group of people who would appreciate that on Twitter. Well, in the um, same way, there's like that uh, uh, Hamilton and Sunnydale account that's like pictures from Buffy <laughs> with quotes from Hamilton. I feel like there needs to be like just quotes from um, Paulo Freire on pictures of Guy Fieri. <laughs> no, this is I would terrible. pay good money for that. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know if you set that account up, listener. Okay. Please. <laughs> You'll have three followers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I, I might well. not follow. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I didn't okay. think oh, that yeah, Caitlin that's... would follow them. <laughs> good shit. God, we are a mess. I like it. <laughs>